Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word as always. Jesus is pretty clever, but don't let us focus on his cleverness so much as the profound things he's saying here. We need your grace and mercy to focus on your claims on our life. And we pray that you would uh, show us that in a very clear way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we get to the specifics of our text this morning, I'm going to take a minute and just talk about something kind of totally unrelated, except in the fact that it deals with questions, because we're in this passage today where um, Jesus' enemies are coming and asking him questions, and they're trying to mess with him. But um, I want to talk about your questions. So um, always feel free to ask questions, okay? Um, Bible teachers... Shepherds of the flock, uh, here anyway, I know, are available for your questions. And you should never carry questions in your mind about things that we've taught or conversations we may have had with you or counseling that we may have done with you that perplex you or um, concern you. If you have questions about, if you have questions about really obscure Bible stuff in the middle of a Bible study, we might say, hold that off till after, then you can ask. Okay, those kind of questions? Bunny trail questions, we might do the same thing. Can you hold that off until we kind of talk about what we're talking about there? You know, those kind of things. But I'm talking about counseling situations or advice or teaching settings or something like that. If we counsel you in a certain way and you feel burdened by it or it doesn't strike you as correct or right, ask. Just come up and say, I don't get what you're telling me. It, this, I think it's wrong. You're bothering me. Or, or are you saying this? Just ask. Come and ask. We had a situation I was in this week where somebody had carried a burden for a long time uh, by something I had said, just straight out of the Bible, uh, you know, but it was not applied in an entirely sensitive way, and they carried a burden for a long time. Never asked. If that happens to you, by me or anybody else around here, just ask. I mean, that would be totally the right thing to do, and we are so open for that, and if we're not, if you come and ask and I brush you off, then go get, grab another elder and say, Pastor brushed me off with my question, then he'll come and grab me by the collar and say, what's going on there? And then we'll, we'll fix each other, okay? That's how it works, because we're all weak and we're all sinners, and we get focused on the wrong things sometimes and we make mistakes. So ask if you have any issues with that about anything. I think I'm a sweetheart, but you might not. <laughs> You might think I'm Mr. Cut and Dried, no nuance at all, but, um, and I do stand firmly on the Word of God, but yes, I can miss nuance and things like that, so you've got to bring them up sometimes. Just feel free to do that about anything. Okay, does that make sense? Good. Okay, Matthew 22, we are in the temple. It is Passion Week. Jesus is in charge of the temple courts deciding what can and cannot take place there. And just the weight of his current popularity allows him this kind of authority. The leaders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the elders, and the others are all afraid to confront him openly because the people love him and they're hanging on every word. And they even say in Luke's gospel that they're worried about a riot or or violence to them if they move too gruffly or quickly or anything like that. So they fear the crowds. They fear their own position, even their safety. So they kind of have to play this cat and mouse game with Jesus. And all their best minds are in town for Passover. So um, they gather, they discuss, they strategize. How can we undo Jesus? How can we 
well, the ultimate goal is to destroy him, but how can they break him away from the crowd, pop, make his popularity? How can they diminish his popularity? How can they turn the tide of public opinion? So that's what their goal is. The strength of Jesus, of course, is the, his authoritative teaching and the, the way people hang on those words of his. Not, not only that, but he's healing people in the temple every day, and it's kind of hard to argue with that. I mean, they, they've done it before. The Pharisees all said, well, that's demonic. But, you know, when people are getting healed, it's hard to, hard to kind of make that case. So they can't stop the miracles, but they can try to undermine him as a teacher. And so far, their efforts have failed pretty dismally. So Matthew 21, 23, we had the first attempt where they came, the big shots came, the power people came and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Remember that? And that discussion from Matthew 21, 23 runs all the way through verse 14 of chapter 22. So that's a long, long discussion there. Jesus just crushes them. He exposes their inability to discern what God is doing. He proclaims that God will be taking the kingdom away from them and giving it to those producing the fruit of it. And that effort was directed by the chief priests and the elders. So now today, as we come to verse 15 in chapter 22, we have a second round of questioning. And eventually there will be four rounds, but round two is, it's the Pharisees' turn. And they have another method in mind of how to approach him. So the chief priests and the elders of the people kind of came with an authoritative, uh, hey, we're actually the rulers around here. But the Pharisees are going to do the flattery method. And then they're going to ask a question which will, they believe, bring an answer that will not please either the Roman government or the crowd, one way or the other. So they're kind of working it here. So verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. They're trying to pry the crowd away from him, so it's a trap. Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 20, verse 20, he, it gives an interesting detail. It says, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. So they're watching him, they're listening, they're looking for anything they could use against him. They actually send spies. So the spies are coming as a form of, it's kind of a formal delegation from the Pharisaic crowd, if you will, and um, they're feigning holiness. I mean, they pretend to be spiritually minded. I can just picture the chief priests and the elders getting together after their failure and they're kind of figuring this out. Who do we know who's the best at pretending to be holy? <laughs> Pharisees. Yeah, there's somebody else, Pharisees. They go, yeah, yeah. So they go bring the Pharisees in. So, so that first group that came were these authoritative people. The Pharisees are more, they're, they're going to be fawning and sort of praising Jesus. So uh, that's what's going on. And these guys, you know, the chief priests, and the, the, they hated the Pharisees. I mean, the Pharisees... The Pharisees always taught that they, the Sadducees, the temple rulers and all that, were compromisers and kissing Rome's hand and all that kind of stuff, that they were, they were not good. And so they hated the Pharisees for being, because um, they were not important people. Your average Pharisee was a middle-class person that was just part of this devoted group. You know, they didn't have any real special standing except that the people admired them as holy and righteous. So they hated each other, those two groups. But you know what they say about common enemies, it makes strange bedfellows, right? So they start working together, and you're going to see that all through here. Verse 16 says, the Pharisees sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. There we are. There's another strange bedfellow situation. Now, we know the Pharisees. We've seen them many times throughout 
the Gospels, that Jesus is not usually in Jerusalem, and outside of Jerusalem, the Pharisees sort of were the dominant religious leaders. Um, like I said, they, weren't, they didn't have any official power, but people respected them tremendously as pious and holy people, so they had a lot of weight, and um, they liked to throw it around, too. Jesus said their piety was what? Remember way back earlier in the gospel? Their piety was a performance. He used the Greek word hypocrites about them, hypocrite, which is the Greek word for actor. He said they're actors, and they're going to act for us today. They're going to pretend. But it says they came with the Herodians. Now, that's a, a whole new group that's mentioned for the first time here in the gospel. Those are the political supporters of King Herod. They have no religious interests, at least not as a group, they don't. Herod, remember, was the Tetrarch of Galilee, and a Tetrarch is kind of a mini-king um, ruling by Rome's permission, favor, you know, they've kind of put him in this little, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was broken up and he got a little piece of it, this, this particular Herod. And, um, so these Herodians are his guys, they're the political guys. Herod, this Herod is the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded as kind of a party favor, you know. So um, he's not Jewish, the, the Herod is. He's Idumean. He's, he's funding, though, and, and building, continuing on the building of the, this great, magnificent temple that Herod the Great started. So the Herodians and the Pharisees are really an odd combination. You have super religious separatists, and you have these political flunkies coming together. Actually, we see that in Washington today. Um, <laughs> On the, on the conservative side of things. So why are they together? They're there to catch Jesus in some statement that would offend Rome and enable them to arrest him and deliver him to the secular authorities. That's what they're looking for. The political flunkies are there as witnesses so that if he makes treasonous statements, they're politically connected and they can get him in a lot more trouble. Okay, so that's kind of what's going on. Um, the Romans were not interested in over and over you see it in the Bible, but it's true throughout secular history as well. The Romans don't care about religious squabbles amongst their conquered peoples. So if, if there's some religious reason Jesus is upsetting people, they don't care as long as there's peace. But if they can actually deliver up to the Romans something that sounds like revolution or rebellion, that's a good bit of information. So they're going to ask a question to elicit that. So the B-team guys, they prepare themselves, they fix on their plastic smiles, they check one another for properly pious faces, yeah, you look good today, all that kind of stuff. They have the lead speaker practice his painfully struggling with a moral dilemma question he wants to ask Jesus, so it, you know, and uh, so they, they approach Jesus. Now, I gotta give you a warning, we're gonna read verse 16. You've gotta put on your snowshoes because it's fallen pretty heavy in this particular situation here. It's snowing, it's snowing. Humanly snowing, you know what I mean? It's a snow job. It's going to make you want to gag, but here we go. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Oh, it's, yeah, that's me. You know, I, they try to disarm Jesus by appealing to his vanity. You see that? They got a problem. He has no vanity. So it's not going to work. They think he's going to slip up because they're flattering him, but he doesn't slip up. He never slips up. So here's the question, verse 17. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? 
Now, it's a very simple, straightforward question, but it's not easily answered, at least not in a political sense or a popularity sense. If he says yes, then they can work the crowd against him because people hate the Roman dominance that they're living under and their occupation and the taxes they have to pay. Um, They would be fit right in with people in 1776. Here's an oppressive government telling us what to do sending their governors over here without us having any say in the matters over here, and we're going to have a revolution. I mean, that's the same sort of flavor of what's going on. This is an oppressive, oppressive system there. So if he says yes, he's a lackey. Jesus is a lackey for Rome. He's supporting Rome. If he says no, which is what they actually hope he's going to say, then they have a charge they can take to Pontius Pilate, have Jesus arrested, and punished as a rebel. So it seems like a win-win for them. It's pretty savvy. Now, they're actually going to lie about this later in the week because Luke chapter 23, 2 says um, at Jesus' trial, they, they just tell a bald-faced lie. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding paying taxes to Caesar, which he never did. So um, it doesn't really matter what he says. You know, it doesn't matter if you tell the truth if people are out for you. So as people will, they lie when it serves their purpose. But at present, they would prefer that Jesus convict himself outright in front of witnesses. So that's what they're hoping for. Why not pay taxes. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that can be conjured up to not pay taxes. From a religious point of view, obviously Jesus is a, a, a prophet, at least in people's minds. He's, a, he's not a political figure. He's a religious figure. But religiously, of course, paying taxes to Caesar directly supports pagan religions because the Romans would build monuments to Caesar where he was worshipped all over the eastern half of the empire. And that would include, well, they didn't, build them in Israel because they they would freak out. But um, they were doing that everywhere, and everybody knew that. So taxes were used to build temples, not just to pagan gods, but to Caesar himself for his worship. Politically, taxes to Caesar supported war and empire. You're making the Roman Empire stronger if you're paying your taxes to them. Morally, taxes to Caesar supported Gladiator shows, murder for entertainment, um, very decadent lifestyles, immoral theater, um, all of that. Everything corrupt and twisted about the Roman Empire, a lot of which we do today, um, were supported by taxes. So, because, you know, they might put on a gladiator show where a thousand human beings would be killed over the course of a week. And your taxes are paying for that, right? So, you can build a case definitely a moral case and a spiritual case that paying taxes is wrong and we shouldn't do it and we should be willing to suffer the consequences if that's what God wants. You could make that case today but that isn't what God wants. That isn't what God wants. Jesus' answer is so insightful and so clear that in one sentence he shaped political discourse for the next couple thousand years. I mean, Talk about a political thinker. He, he just gets it all right. And, it, and it, what he says here has ramifications in every country where Christians live and profound ramifications and shaping political systems and all kinds of things. It's, it's really quite amazing. So political discourse in the West for at least 1,600 years has turned on these words. Here he goes, verse 18. Jesus perceived their malice. He saw right through them. That's what that means. <laughs> And, and said, why are you testing me? You hypocrites. <laughs> Great way to start. <laughs> Show me the coin used for the poll tax. So they brought him a denarius. Typical day's wage kind of coin. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. 
Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That is way more profound than you know because you live in a Western democracy where your individual rights are supposed to be preserved by the government. But that system that we have would never have existed if he had not said these words. Um, so first of all, I think the most important principle is just this. God's interests and man's interests are not identical. That's a, that's a very revolutionary thing to say. In most nations throughout history, government and religion are one. They might have tension at certain times, but they're one. They're a unified um, combination of power for purposes of controlling people. So religious interests serve the state, and the state serves religious interests. That's still going on today, but it was certainly true in Egypt, ancient Egypt, in Greece, in Rome. Uh, you know, Julius Caesar was the high priest of the Roman religion when he was a younger man before he became an emperor. I mean, it's all tied together. Persia, Babylon, you name it. Think of the Aztecs. Think of them pulling people's hearts out of their chest and rolling heads down their little ziggurat things, you know, and all of that. Um, that's a religion and the power of the state in one um, through gruesome murder of human beings as a celebration of, of God. They were so twisted and so perverse and they had a very successful and advanced civilization through sheer terror. The unity of religion and state to support each other. European history, which had the Gospels, is a fascinating battle between Jesus' words and efforts to bring religion under the service of the state. And all of medieval history, in fact, is, is sort of a battle between those things. Sometimes the state would be using the church. Sometimes the church successfully resisted or opposed the state, at least to maintain its independence. Sometimes the church dominated the state, which is not a good situation either. Today, in many places, states are completely trying to co-opt the church. We've been talking about China a lot lately, trying to crush the church. In fact, you should come this afternoon and hear about that. Literally trying to crush the church into conformity, destroying church buildings, putting pastors in prison, replacing the Ten Commandments with quotes from the leader of China. They're actually embarking on a, a work now to rewrite the Bible, to make a Chinese Bible that takes all the stuff about submitting to God out and you know, it's all about the state and everything like that. They're actually going to do that. The Russian government today is so deeply tied to the Russian Orthodox Church that they are openly persecuting evangelicals and they've passed all these laws that forbid evangelization. They'd rather have people not know Christ, the Russian Orthodox Church, than give up control. India is ruled by radical Hindus who are turning a blind eye to lots of violence against believers over there and they've passed new laws too very recently new laws anti-conversion laws it's a, the world weds religion to the state for control so Jesus words here touch on very very great matters among the nations but the principles are really personal they're really for us you know individually and his point is that both both God and government have claims on human beings you are not an island unto yourself. They have claims on our persons. We are not radically independent creatures. Now, you could go live in the woods and maybe nobody would ever know, but that's pretty unusual. In fact, they might be making us do that by turning our power off all the time. But uh, <laughs> God makes claims on men. 
God makes claims on men. And his claims, because he's God and your creator and the maker of heaven and earth, his claims are absolute. There's no room to wiggle from the claims God makes on you. His claims on us are as high above all other claims as he is above all the puny powers of the world. So if there are competing claims, his claims are always first over the government or any other human institution. Always first. But Caesar has claims too, and they are valid claims, but his claims have boundaries. They're not absolute. The state, the state can make claims in its domain, which is commerce, courts of law, magistrates, law enforcement. I mean, civil society needs government because human beings are so evil. And that government requires what to function? Money, taxes, they're necessary. They're necessary. So God claims the soul and the will for himself. And his commands must be obeyed no matter what it means for us, even if it means suffering and persecution, which our brothers and sisters are doing all over the world today, as we speak. But the state has claims on the bodies and behavior of men up to a point. If you studied a dollar bill lately, oh, I didn't bring my, my dollar bill, but look at one. It's okay, hon. I, I memorized it. George Washington. <laughs> Big letters. The United States of America. Flip it on the back. The United States of America. I mean, everything about it is on there. It says United States of America in big letters on both sides. It says Washington, D.C., Department of the Treasury. I mean, it's, no, it's got our seal on there. The great seal of the United States, it has. So it's exactly the same thing as Jesus is doing 2000. He could have pulled out a dollar bill and said, What's George doing on this dollar bill? And you could have said, Who's, whose name and authority runs across the top of that bill? And flipped on the back and say, who's, whose seal is that? On He could have done all that. And all of that stuff on the dollar bill suggests a certain authority, which we all acknowledge as we use that, that device as a means of exchange. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, wrote about AD 200 or so, he said this of Jesus' words. He says, we, and when there were still emperors, he said, we have for Caesar the image of Caesar, which is impressed upon the coin, for God, the image of God, which is impressed upon human beings. Give Caesar his money. Give yourself to God. Accordingly, we follow the apostles' injunction to submit to magistrates, principalities, and powers, but only within the limits of discipline. That is, so long as we keep ourselves clear of idolatry. And that's the right balance. So we are good and obedient citizens of the state, in our case, the United States, not trying to cheat Caesar, but not submitting either if Caesar demands that we forsake faithfulness to the Lord and his commandments, his claims upon us. God comes first, even if they kill us. Let's look at Romans chapter 13. You probably thought I might turn there. <laughs> Paul is very clear about um, what we render to Caesar. And then, then we'll talk more about what we render to God, okay? Romans 13, another widely studied text in the history of Western civilization. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, verse one. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, 
And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also, grievous words, you also pay taxes. (laughs) For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. That is really clear teaching. There's not a lot of wiggle room in there. I was reading an old sermon this week from the um, 1700s talking about customs because the big thing in those days, especially in England because they were a ship-based country, was to, of course, get around the ports and deliver goods without paying customs. I mean, that was a very common thing to do. And um, everybody was trying to weasel their way around paying custom, you know. And he, the, he just was hammering Christians who would be involved in those kind of trades like that because that's not right. That's against Scripture, Fl- flat out against Scripture. So, very clear. Now, if you're smuggling Bibles into England for free, To pass out the word of God, that's okay. (laughs) Because people need that. That's that's God's command to take the gospel into all the earth. But cheating on your taxes is actually a sin. And, you know, you can fool the tax man, maybe. But as it says in scripture, God will be regarded as holy by his people. And he sees that. And you might not fear the IRS, but you should fear God. You really should. Because he can drain away your money way more than the IRS can. He can bring affliction, things breaking down at your house. He can, he can do all kinds of stuff. Health problems, lose your job, lose a contract, accidents. He can bring all of that to bear to say, you're not doing the right thing by cheating the government. So, you know, do the right thing. And he, he tends to want to bless you for doing the right thing using your money in the right ways. Don't provoke the Lord. He sees. Some people think if they sneak off with a few thousand extra bucks, God won't see. (laughs) He sees that. He not only sees it, he actually cares about it. That's really clear from all these texts. But verse 5 of Romans 13, therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So I just threatened you with wrath, but, but you defile your conscience when you break laws or cheat the government. So, don't do that. Now, there is this little group of Christian people who would say and try to convince you that um, taxes, paying taxes is, is doing what we talked about earlier, supporting an immoral government. Some people teach a doctrine, and it's becoming bigger right now, of, of societal sin. That is, if we pay taxes to government involved in evil, we share in the guilt of our government by paying taxes. That's the theory so we shouldn't do it and we should resist but that's 
the opposite of what Jesus says. The Bible doesn't teach corporate guilt um, unless everybody's guilty in the corporate, you know? That is, if we pay taxes to the government, we're, we're not guilty of what the government's doing with it. Think about that logically. Jesus paid his taxes. If there's corporate guilt, he's guilty of sin. And he's not guilty of sin. Jesus is sinless. And he paid his taxes. Just that in itself eliminates that thinking for us. If the government funds abortions, for example, that is, that is on the heads of them that made that decision. Not that we paid our taxes and they used our taxes for that. California just... just this governor we have, he's insane, but um, <laughs> that's not a political statement. That is a, that is a moral statement. <laughs> I think I just broke an IRS code, but <laughs> I love him. He's just insane. But they just passed a law. Well, of course, the whole legislature, right? With it. They just passed a law that they're going to put abortion clinics on every college campus in the, in the state of California for immediate access for every student. I mean, that's... How twisted can you be? And they also passed laws that no circuses can come to California because the animals might be unhappy. They, at the same time, they, he signed those, those two bills. I mean, that's, that's pretty twisted. To me, that's insane. But you know what? We should still pay our taxes. And I hate it when I have to pay California taxes. <laughs> if the government embarks on a war of conquest, that's their responsibility before God. We still have to pay our taxes. The sin is on them. So government leaders can and do often abuse the authority that God has given them to do evil. That is true. But that sin does not fall on us by paying taxes. They're responsible to God and we're responsible to God. You know the Roman system that permitted Pontius Pilate to put Jesus to death? That same system rescued the Apostle Paul when he was threatened by a mob. They sent armed soldiers in to pull him out of a, a situation and save his life. Government authority is required. Some governments abuse that authority. Sometimes that authority is used to keep the peace and protect us even. So it's not about that. Pontius Pilate's crime is on his head for what he did. So we render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But while we might get hung up on all these discussions about government and stuff, the second part of Jesus' statement is the most important, really, for us. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Never stop there when you read this text. And to God the things that are God's. Most people will grudgingly give Caesar his due because the IRS has more terror for them than the wrath of the living God. So most people are more worried about that, the IRS wrath, than God's wrath. But So they'll pay their thing to Caesar, but what exactly are we, to rent, are we to render to God? So the issue is, what claims does he make upon us? Is it possible for me, as a Christian, to do church stuff and yet willfully deny Jesus what I owe him, his due? And I am not talking about money. What is his due? What does he expect from us? Well, you know, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul was speaking to kind of a difficult audience. Um, it was the philosophy club in Athens, and this is long after the days of Aristotle and Plato. They, they were not the most brilliant guys in the world, but um, he had an opportunity to speak to them, and he found a statue in the city that said to an unknown god, and he said, I'm going to use that. I'm going to tell them about the, the god they don't know, the real god, you know. So he does this whole lecture thing, but part of that, he says... 
We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. And then this is Acts 17, verse 30. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring that all men everywhere, all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Repentance is a claim that God has on people who are sinful. You owe him repentance. Because there's a day of righteous judgment, Paul says. And there's a problem there because the Bible says plainly about humanity in several places, two Psalms, the book of Romans, there is none righteous, not even one. If you think you're righteous, just stand up. We'd like to worship you. <laughs> but you know you're not. So some people, some people are less cruel than other people. Some people have a sweeter disposition than other people. None of them are righteous. And that is what he seeks. And because we are not righteous and because our sins are such an offense to his moral nature and his goodness... He has a claim on us, not for taxes, but for repentance. That's the claim he has. Turning from sin and embracing the Savior that he provided, that's repentance. God has a claim on you for true repentance, heartbroken over sin, seeking mercy. God has this claim on all men. So even for a believer, sin... Is a struggle that we have, but it's also a struggle to hold on to it because the Holy Spirit's in us and he doesn't like it and it's hard to be happy with sin all the time. If you're happy with sin, you're in a bad, bad place. Life starts to become more painful when you're living in sin as a Christian or you're embracing sin or holding on to sin. Joy becomes more elusive. David said in Psalm 32 about his horrible sin, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And then when he confesses his sin and experiences restoration, songs of deliverance fill his soul. And he's a new man. And that Psalm, Psalm 32, it concludes, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. And shout for joy, all of you that are upright in heart. That's how it ends. Be happy. But that path to joy is a path of repentance. And if anybody knew that, David knew it. He knew the burden of guilt, the loss of peace, the sickness in his heart, which he accepted that sickness for a long, long time. It was a year at least before he repented of that sin. And he knew what it was like. But that's what a believer feels when they sin. There's the hand of God upon them. It's hard to be happy and do that. But in repentance, David found the joy of forgiveness and and the freedom to walk as a child of God. God has claims on us. The only question is, are we going to pay up the claims that he has? Will you give him what is due him? One last text. I could look at so many here, but Micah chapter 6 has that famous Verse Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. Uh, the people of Israel had become very wicked and lost their way, and the enticements of sin and power and wealth had overwhelmed them. And Micah six is just 
is profound and it, it touches the heart because it separates religion from real faith, from an actual living faith in God. And it compares what we might call churchy activity to the soul's thirst for a right relationship with God. And he says, Micah 6, 6, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Walk humbly with your God. Think about those words. With suggests living and doing by faith each step of your life. Walk, walk. Walking is step by step. Humbly means acknowledging God for who he is, recognizing your sin and your limitations. With means side by side with him, of course, including him. Do you include God in your life uh, every day? Like the decisions that you make, the way you conduct yourself? Is he, are you sensitive to his presence? Are you seeking his approval? Is that a conscious thing or do you just not even think about it? He has a claim on you to walk humbly with him. And your God, walk humbly with your God. That doesn't mean the God you've invented for yourself. Doesn't mean the made up God. It means you have a relationship with the living God, the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, he has claims on you to walk humbly with him. So if you have a daily humble walk with God, sin traps just don't grab you as often. You don't stumble as often. Because Jesus is better to you than all that stuff. So you just say, well, yeah, well, that's really enticing. But Jesus is so much better. God is drawn to the humble. And I do mean the humble heart. Not outside stuff, not faces that look humble or body postures that look humble or tones of speech that sound humble, but humility on the inside. He's drawn to that. Pride drives him out. And, and don't think of pride as um, some kind of inflated sense of self, some big stubborn thing like that. There are people like that, but most people aren't like that. That's not what we mean. Aren't I great? Yeah, we, that's pride. We can all point to that and see pride with that. But that's not what most people have. Pride, pride is something deeper. It, it, pride is any heart that starts to think for a moment that it is above God, that it is above God's commandments, that it's above scripture, or starts to think godliness is a drag, or I'll do it my way. That is pride. It can be a very subtle, quiet, I'm just going to do it my way. I don't have to be accountable. I'm going to choose. Such a transition from that kind of pride to a humble walk with God, to go from pride to humility, it's got to be repentance. It's got to be repentance. That's why Paul puts that claim of repentance on everyone in the world because that has to, it has to start there. Seeing sin the way God sees sin as abhorrent, as 
something wretched and horrible that we've introduced into God's universe and, and then turning to this incredible savior that God provided for us. God makes claims. He makes claims on the heart. He makes claims on your soul. He makes claims on our decisions. He makes claims on our time. He makes claims on your attitudes. He makes claims on your loyalty. He makes claims on the role you're serving in your family. He makes claims on how you conduct yourself at work. He makes claims on you for his church, his kingdom. And he's so much better at finding cheaters than the IRS is. You know, I read recently that just the other day there was an article about the IRS. It said, you know, rich people don't get audited nearly as much as poor people because it's just so complicated. They don't want to do it. So they aim at people that are simpler because they can do it more. Who do you think's cheating more? <laughs> I mean, what an incredible thing. But God is way, God isn't like that. Oh, that's too complicated. I'm not getting involved in examining that person's life. God isn't like that. He's looking for righteousness. He searches the hearts. He plumbs the depths of our very beings, our motives, the Bible says. The thoughts and intentions of the heart he's looking at. He knows it all. He has claims on all those things. Everybody gets audited by an all-seeing holiness, and it's real. The good news is that God is way more forgiving than the IRS. If we seek him on his terms and repent and give him his due, that repentance, justice, mercy, and the humble walk by his side, it all falls into place and he becomes a true father to us, a good father, and forgives us. Well, our story ends with this, verse 22. Hearing this, they were amazed. And leaving him, they went away. It's almost time for us to go away. <laughs> Jesus wins round two. Uh, on deck over there are the Sadducees waiting to come for round three, question three, which is going to be a theological question. We'll look at that next week. That's for next time. Let's pray. Our great God, never let us forget the claims that you make upon our lives. They have to do with everything. Yes, the government has claims on us by your will, by your giving them certain authority, but your claims are absolute. Draw us to the place of repentance and a humble walk with our God. That pleases you. 10,000 rivers of oil does not buy your affection for us. But a humble walk, that moves you in our direction. Give us grace to be humble before you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.